everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. I'm Carson Humiston, the founder of Vangst, and today I have two very special guests with us. We have Morgan Paxia and Emily Paxia, our favorite siblings in the cannabis industry, some of our favorite investors in the cannabis industry. Good morning, guys. How are you? It looks rainy in San Francisco. Good morning from a rainy San Francisco. Yeah, it's, it's full on storming today. It is. Well, look, it is here, but, you know, atmospheric rivers, be damned. We keep going. <laughs> we keep going. So, so we wanted to have you on today, given the events that happened at SVB on last week and over the weekend, and, of course, some runs on regional banks yesterday. Of course, the cannabis industry relies very heavily on regional banks. I know we're in some regional banks. A lot of your companies and our other investors are in regional banks. So we want to talk about that. We want to talk about what the crash of Silicon Valley Bank means more broadly for venture-backed companies and, and specifically venture-backed companies in cannabis and tips for founders and operators, where they should hold their cash, how, how they should change their strategy and think about their strategy. So a, a lot to talk about today. Mm -hmm. To kick it off, Morgan, for people that are far away and maybe haven't necessarily been following Silicon Valley Bank in the series of events that went down last week. Could you explain to people in a nutshell what happened and how this happened? Sure. Yeah, pretty simply, it was a risk management issue that happened at Silicon Valley Bank. There's been a lot of chatter about derivative kind of implications that may have happened at the at the bank ultimately. But in this specific instance, they were taking deposit money, right, from startups and obviously a big bank in, in Silicon Valley yeah. name is appropriate. And so they had this big deposit base. But what happened with that deposit base as capital markets were even getting tighter for Silicon Valley companies, that deposit base was was shrinking. And they had taken that deposit money, though, and bought longer duration securities. This is something that was okay under the purview of the federal regulatory guidelines. Even as recently as two weeks ago, it was noted as a well-capitalized bank. KPMG, their auditor signed off as balance sheet and everything. So, But it's kind of like 101 of when you're buying fixed income instruments. If you don't understand what interest rates sensitivity is, when you have something that is so a short duration as deposit, which is overnight, right? So zero duration, basically. But then if you're buying 10-year mortgage-backed security, especially when they were building that book over the last year or two before these interest rates went up so much, those bonds declined in value materially. And that's really all the, the simple premise of what happened was, was just that, was they had a loan book that, or just the, the securities they were buying declined in value and... And at the same time, their deposit base was depleting. So it just created a mismatch. And then you had kind of the final straw was you had a bunch of VCs saying to all their portfolio companies to get their money out. And banks just can't handle that, especially when you had a bank like Silicon Valley Bank that has such a few such few dollars reserved against its deposit base. So they were very aggressive in their in their securities purchases, doing so under the regulatory guidelines that still said it was okay, but just kind of risk be damned and, and just went full force at it. That does bring into question about other banks that were doing similar kind of activity. Again, this was something that was basically blessed by the regulators. Doesn't mean that it's okay. And I think ultimately what the government is doing by backstopping depositors is the right thing to do because the depositors are not supposed to be reading financial statements and understanding that their money that they're getting paid nothing for is actually a tremendous risk 
So they should be backstopping it. But I'll, I'll stop there because there's a, a lot more that goes on beyond that. But that's basically the, the setup that happened for them last week. I would note that their chief risk officer departed the company in April of 2022 and was not replaced. So and that nor was that disclosed actually to shareholders. So I know that right now the guidance from the government has been that the the, the depositors will be made whole whether or not it's within the insured limit or not. But they also did articulate, and I think the president went further, as Morgan said, to articulate that shareholders and investors would not be covered off on this, which I understand. It's a different risk profile. I think if you put money in a bank, that's the deal. Like I understand FDIC and the origins of it, and it all came out of the Great Depression, and, it, and it's here to protect us up to a certain limit. But if the bank starts to go rogue in terms of their risk assessment without a risk officer and it was never disclosed, I think that's a pretty important miss. I did see that already the first lawsuit is being filed against SVB as of yesterday afternoon. I mean, on, on top of that, I mean, just talking about the the in their risk controls were not there. There's definitely a lot of arrogance and greed in this bank. You saw the executives were selling stock selling. going into this. There was bonuses paid the day before the bank failed. So I do hope there is repercussions for, for their actions. I think President Biden did go as far as to say his management should be fired. But I think there's criminal activity here that should be pursued um, because there, there is a real question around moral hazard. Because if, yeah. if banks know that the, the depositors are always going to get bailed out, they're going to take as much risk as they can. So until there's, there's adequate repercussions for for those decision making, we can just expect this to keep going. And that's not good either. So I, I agree. I was happy to see that there's already action underway there. Did you see that activist investor who tweeted, he's done this before with some other things, he tweeted for anybody inside the organization to disclose if they knew that these group, these managers were acting in, in bad faith, knowing exactly what was coming for, for like, essentially like a prize like an award to bring it forward. I thought that was kind of cool. This guy's done this before. I'm trying to remember his name, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Anyway. Do you guys think that going forward, banks should be able to take, because they were also using the depositor's money to roll out venture loans, which are obviously mm -hmm. pretty risky vehicles, right? Like venture debt in general, I know it hasn't been largely accessible to cannabis, but a company goes and raises $10 million and then they get venture debt for $5 million and they think this is basically free money. There was no covenants. And the general notion is that they will then go on and raise additional rounds of financing, which then when those rounds of financing didn't happen this year, their loan book w was also down. So it's like Silicon Valley Bank was using depositors' money to buy long-term assets as well as other very high-risk things like venture debt. I mean, do you think that banks should be able to do that with depositors' money? It seems a little bit crazy to me. I mean, business banks, their job is they, they are take deposits and they are supposed to find ways to put that capital to work within a, a risk parameter. So it is a good question of how much would be okay to put at risk. I think they had something like 10% of their book was in venture. I think that would fail a reasonableness test. After many years of, of basically free money, it, it just seemed great. And so they just kept doing it and, and growing it because it was working. And we saw the same thing back in the in the mid 2000s leading up to the great financial crisis where these institutions were just all buying as much mortgage-backed securities, CLOs, CDOs, all this stuff because it was working. And then until it stops, right? And then, and then you find out just how far down that can go. I imagine if Silicon Valley Bank 
did continue to run through this cycle, that book would have become a, a problem for them. They would have seen a lot more defaults the, because it had been very low. I mean, you think the last five years, the default rate in Silicon Valley was almost zero because money was just freely available. And so it created a lot of zombie companies, but it kept those that venture debt book going just fine because there was another round always waiting for so many of these companies. But I, I what is the right number? I think it, it's an overall assessment about what does the rest of their book look like? I think 10% sure is, is too high regardless, but it, it does merit thinking about the entire portfolio so that if there are losses in, in that in that risk bucket, that there are other higher quality assets that wouldn't wouldn't be going down at the same time, right? So managing a diversified book is okay. It's just what's what's the tolerances around that? Well, and this is where I become really cranky about the Fed and how long the Fed took to respond to what was really stacking up to be a runaway train of an economy. And they should have cooled this down a long time ago instead of instead we're just crashing. And except the markets are ripping because the Fed will probably <laughs> I, I can't even with it. But, you know, I think that was like the underwriting on that was like we live in a low interest, interest free world. Like, what are we no problem. We'll always be able to do this. Money is free. And it it kind of gave this like gambling mentality. The underwriting was very poor. And it's interesting because like, I think about 60 to 90 days before this, I had a call with Silicon Valley Bank. And if I'm honest, it was, um, it was nothing short of obnoxious in terms of their attitudes towards the cannabis industry and the bankability of our industry. And I just can't help. I mean, yeah, we have our issues. And yes, there was where we will see many defaults and, and restructuring projects going on here in the very near term or already happening like what you see in parallel. But there are also companies that are very eligible for for appropriate lending resources or even just deposit bank accounts. And so I don't when when we talk about risk assessment, I think that was just very poor and myopic risk assessment on their part. And so there was no love loss for me when this happened. I've had a few interactions with them. And we even had a founder and a pure ancillary company. They closed their A round of funding. It was a very successful round of funding from traditional VCs, not just cannabis, actually primarily traditional VCs. And they deposited, you know, what the money came in and Silicon Valley Bank called them up and told them, you got to get that money out right now. They gave them less than a day and they had to literally go and collect a multi-million dollar check and go find a new account immediately. And we can tell many stories about this, but that was just one specific to that bank. Yeah. And Carson, just to, you, you did make a very good point about covenants. And, mm -hmm. and if you are using deposit or money, they started out with covenants, right? And as, as, as it was working and they were getting too comfortable with it, right? Risk goes away and, and so did the covenants. And, uh, and, I, and that was a really good point. I don't want to skip over that. So covenants for Super. anyone that's not aware are basically requirements. Like if you're going to take this loan, there are certain things you have to do to maintain compliance with your loan or else it can become in default and the bank can call it. And, and they started out again with, with good protections and then they, it went away. Cause again, money was too free for too long. As Emily was saying, like the federal reserve really screwed a lot of things up. And now we're in a really weird place, which we can get into if we want to, but from, from a federal perspective, federal reserve perspective, monetary policy, but, but yeah, that was, so that definitely does shift that risk perspective in that bucket a lot. And if they're going to drop covenants, how are, again, are they managing risk across right. the rest of the book? 
Yeah, that, that was yeah. That, that was, the point I was trying to make was like I'm a depositor. I put my money into Silicon Valley Bank. I didn't sign up for you to go and loan a bunch of unprofitable venture debt with no covenants. I mean, like that's just that's just seeming seems kind of reckless. So I think we've identified really two buckets that we've talked about so far. So obviously, like SVB, their risk team, their duration mismatch. We've also talked about the regulators. Like, why are why are these banks able to do this? But I think a third category of people is boards and founders not cutting burn. I mean, a lot of this has to do with deposits slowed, but spending stayed the same, right? And so people were spending like it was 2020 and 2021, but it was 2022. And I know that VCs like the two of you have been beating the drum since last February, last May, you went to all your portfolio companies and you said, we need to have a clear line of sight to profitability and or cash into 2025. I know our board worked really hard with me. I know our team worked really hard to get our expenses under control. But what is so clear is that a lot of companies did not get that memo because spending kept going at the same rate. So what kind of responsibility do you think founders and boards should take in all of this? Of course, we know that the the, the SVB is to blame, regulators are to blame, but also Founders and boards. What what is your thought? What are your thoughts on that? It was pretty surprising to hear that uh, basically the attitude hadn't changed. To your point, like there was no there was no response to the realities of the environment, and I really don't know what what was being discussed in these companies that they were just okay with that. I mean, they all need a lesson from the cannabis industry about treating cash as, as a precious resource and not a, a commodity. And uh, yeah, I was I was really surprised actually to hear that. I mean, the other challenge with Silicon Valley Bank with that point is their concentration risk. Their depositor base was was overly concentrated in, in this area, again, that had been fine. I mean, if you think about Silicon Valley Bank, made it through the dot-com bust. Yeah. And that was, that was a real bust, yeah. right? I mean, that was like two and a half years of real pain in Silicon Valley and the bank was okay. So what were they doing back then that was okay, that they were able to manage through that, probably a lot more conservative managing the risk so that when they did have to draw down, they were in better shape. I mean, sure, at the same time, interest rates were still coming down. So if they did any, have any long duration fixed income, it was it was actually appreciating in value. So that may have helped cover up the depletion of deposit base. But Silicon Valley in, in the great financial crisis was, a, was, really, was really a blip. I mean, they just kind of sailed right through it. If anything, they grew even more while everybody else was struggling. So I don't think that's a really good window to look at, more so the, the dot-com bust. But yeah, I mean, the, the challenge, again, as Emily mentioned, is with free money, was there was just a, a disregard of risk. So whether you're talking about it from the regulators, from the, the bank and the bank's board and their unwillingness to recognize risk or the, their very depositors and, and the mentality in, in those startups, it was just kind of a general disregard. And that's where I think we're just at the beginning of, of this, right? I think this the duration mismatch issue that we're seeing right now that we saw with Silicon Valley Bank that we're going to see probably with some other banks is just the first wave of kind of this risk, this lack of risk management that had kind of gotten so pervasive that's going to be rolling into other issues with other regional banks. An area that we've been looking at quite a bit with a lot of these banks has been the extent of their commercial loan book has become massive, very concentrated relative. So there, so we're like kind of rolling into the next 
phase of this. It's probably months on the horizon, but we're already seeing defaults picking up there. And I think that that'll be far more of a risk map than, than a duration issue because you can sell fixed income, right? Treasuries are very, very liquid market. Goldman Sachs bought Silicon Valley's entire book for no problem, right? It was a $2 billion transaction. That's nothing for them. But if you're trying to offload illiquid commercial uh, properties in a challenging market, that's a very, very different situation. Yeah. So that gets me to the next point and where most of our listeners are probably interested in cannabis. I mean, most people in cannabis work bank with regional banks. None of us mm-hmm. are banking with big four banks. And so when I listen to all every podcast and everything I've listened to over the last few weeks and I, or not few weeks, that's losing track of time here, a few days, are, are, are particularly our non-cannabis investors are saying, get your money into one of these big four banks, <laughs> JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, et cetera. So obviously a lot of the ca- cannabis founders are concerned about regional banks. Perfect example, Western Alliance, Bridge Bank, great partner to us, but nothing but nice. But when we wake up and we see that their stock is down by 85% and trading is halting, I'm like GTFO. So, so, and I think everyone was thinking that. So talk about cannabis, talk about regional banks and uh, where should we be parking our money right now if we're a cannabis company? If you could get into the top four, go for it, (laughs) but just get ready to lose it pretty quickly. Maybe, who knows? I mean, there's a couple of things. Morgan and I have been through a number of bank accounts. And I'm ke- I, I, I always joke that I'm keeping the receipts for when the banking laws change because I know <laughs> who I will not be giving our money to. I think U.S. Bank will be at the lowest of my point because they were the ones who forced us out the fastest. But I think, and it's funny because Morgan and I have always actually been incredibly transparent. Our first banking relationship with first was with First Republic. They had our entire, P- I mean, they always have our PPM and LPA. So it's whether or not anybody's looking at it is another story. Now we're an investment firm or SEC registered. It's a little bit of a different profile for the banks, but it's just one of those things. But the way we've been talking about it is just have redundancies. And what is interesting, too, is another counterpart to counter, counterpoint to what I saw in my colleagues who are invested in just traditional tech is that most cannabis companies do have redundancies because they've gone through some form of, of suffering around banking. And I think it's everybody's nightmare when you can't make payroll. I mean, if your business is failing and you can't make payroll, that's the ultimate nightmare. But if you are solvent and you're running a great business and then your business, your banking relationship fails and you can't make payroll, that is terrible. And we saw that happen last week with Silicon Valley Bank. Some of the payroll providers who work directly with them really struggled to get money out, run that payroll on Friday. And so... Um, oh, no. I, over the weekend, I mean, particular... Yeah. I, I mean, have most of my, a lot of my... Half of my founder friends are non-cannabis founder friends couldn't access their deposits or their account over the weekend and they have to run payroll on Monday or Tuesday, scrambling to try to raise emergency capital. I mean, it was a total nightmare because half of the investors deposit their their, their money's also in Silicon Valley Bank. So it was a mad rush just to be able to make payroll on Monday and Tuesday, which of course the three of us are on the same page that depositors 100% had to be backstopped. The right thing happened on Sunday, but yeah, Emily... I kind of cut you off there, but I mean, yeah, that was crazy. But I mean, that this happened, like, what everyone else in this world dealt with for the last 72 hours, cannabis companies deal with all the time. We had our bank account shut down and we had to get out and get a new bank account. I mean, there was a, there was a time at banks in 2017 where I had to write people handwritten checks and then figure out what the taxes were that we owed on it. I mean, 
this is, it, it, we've lived this for a lot of times. I mean, just like welcome to our lives, the rest of the world. Yeah, it's so disconcerting and you lose so much time. I can't Don't count me. the hours I've lost going to new banks, to open accounts and get the money over there and then forget it when you have to set it. And the payroll process is also a massive nightmare. And I know Morgan immediately was on the phone with work, uh, leading payroll provider to the industry. But like, so you, so here's where you are as a cannabis company, to your point. I mean, we're all sitting in regional banks. Some of us do have relationships with some of the top ones, but you know, you where your payroll lives and all of your bill pay and all of those, the infrastructure you've built around your business. Yeah. To save time and money is, is usually with one institution. And so even if you've done a good job and, and having redundancies and doing all the right things, and by the way, that also gets expensive because of all the, the banking fees. And that's, I mean, these are just all of the, the pain points that we live by in cannabis, but for this was one of the things we were talking. So Morgan and I started talking to founders last Thursday when Silicon Valley Bank started kind of showing that it was about to implode. And I think Morgan and I, I mean, it's kind of like our, I joke that our brand is crisis. Like we grew up in, <laughs> in crisis in our personal lives with our, with our parents and all of that. And then in cannabis, it's just like, okay, what's the new body blow of the week that we got to navigate here? But so we saw this and I think Morgan and I were also both in New York. Morgan was at UBS when the great financial crisis occurred. Like I watched my friends get locked out of Lehman, like I know, and lose jobs at Bear Stearns. Like we lived through this. So I feel like we were immediately like, boom, oh my gosh. And Morgan, I've been joking all weekend that Morgan's triggered by the word contained because of what happened the last time and then yelling again, talking about it this time with crypto. And uh, so we just started calling founders and just checking in, like, where are you guys? What do you have? Make sure you have redundancies. But then, of course, the founders, the next question is like, okay, well, I run payroll next week. So if I if if my primary bank that's connected to payroll changes, then I've got to like make sure that get payroll shifted over to the backup bank. It's a whole it's a whole thing. And so it's not just as easy as having redundancies, but that was the I would say that was the number one thing we think about. And especially because we are forced into the regional or local credit union level banking, which Again, just to like point out, a lot of times their tech platforms are not as easy to work with. It's just a whole, it's a whole different can of worms. It's so and janky. Some of these, some of these yeah. banks. I mean, it's the nicest way to describe it. Janky, yeah. Yeah. The so it is really nice that the comforting, right? I mean, it's, it's very important to have a functioning banking system. And so now knowing that we have a, a backstop for depositors takes that initial pressure off but the question will remain as we roll through this as i really do think we're going to see a lot more banks not surviving this period especially in the mid-tiers the regionals again because of my concern around commercial I, I think there's just going to be a lot more defaults and those books are going to be beat up pretty badly and but again the positives are okay and so as emily was saying like you build all this infrastructure the question that we're getting from companies that we're talking to is, okay, so I'm at X bank. And if it gets married off to one of the big four, then what happens? And that's the question mm -hmm. we don't know is if you get acquired, one is the, is the SIB, the too big to fail bank. Are they going to say, we're not taking crypto or cannabis deposits, you're on your own. And then you're left scrambling at that point so do you do you kind of maintain status quo until that happens and that's why i'm like saying like making sure you have some redundancies the challenge is your as you both are noting is you go to a, a community bank or a credit union 
and the the technology is is not great. the limitations are are much greater right i mean some of our companies have to do international wires and you can't do that at a community bank or it's incredibly challenging to be able to do so we need access to more established institutions that you can do that kind of activity it's just normal course business and it shouldn't be that hard so obviously there's well, not obviously, but I, I've been surprised to see that people have been like, see, this is why we need safe banking. And it's like, see, this is why we're not getting safe banking, <laughs> unfortunately, because there's other issues that they're trying to deal with. They're, they're asking questions about how did we get here for Silicon Valley Bank? The regulators are asking this and it has nothing to do with cannabis. And it's not mm-hmm. going to be something that would be like, ooh, this will solve that problem. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. So, so do you think with- this do you think this delay is do you think this? This was a question I wanted to ask you, do you, and I think I know your answer based on what you just said, but does, <laughs> does this delay safe banking or make safe banking more interesting to members of Congress? I'm, I'm pretty firmly in the camp that we're near zero probability of safe banking ever happening. I just, uh, I'm not going to say zero because anything can happen, but we're near zero. I just, there's, there's every other thing that they can worry about that they care about. If they wanted to, if they, it's the same, they could have done it last year and they didn't. And so why, what makes it different this time around when you have crises happening in other areas, we're just not going to be a priority for them. We haven't been, and I don't know how we become a priority unless we look at other ways of enforcing or getting in front of them. And that's not spending money on, on lobbying dollars because there's been plenty of money spent by our industry trying to get that attention. So I think more important, what, we got to look at other ways of getting there than this than this initiative that's just not gained traction. But Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I don't. I I just frankly don't see it as a priority. I mean, they made it clear in December it's not a priority, and now, I mean, <laughs> I was joking with Morgan that like if you just read below the fold on Bloomberg, then you see like North Korea firing missiles. Like we have other things going on. I'm laughing because I'm incredibly nervous when I think about these things, but it's like, I just don't, I don't see this Congress making us a priority, even though it, I mean, honestly, it could have helped some of these banks if they had taken cannabis deposits, but not enough. It's kind of like a finger in the dam. Okay. So so, uh, we did look at like Valley Bank, right. And they are great partners to the industry and, and their stock has done very well through this period. They did not see that run like their preferreds held up very well. And to your point, because it's probably a better, a better deposit mix, right. They built a better, a better balance sheet. So, so now is where we, now is where we insert a commercial for Blake, the banker at Valley Bank. If you're interested (laughs) in a intro, Blake, I will take my fee. I told, but, him to but come to, I told him to come to Benzinga and I'll just send people to him. I was like, just go, man. <laughs> oh, he will. He went yeah. to MJBiz. He will be there. He's a great guy and they've been great, incredible banking partners. So, and again, they, they did really well. So, yeah. but I mean, Morgan, and, to your, to your, to your quote around zero chance of safe banking happening, like, okay, so, so, so how, like, how does this industry survive without banking or some level of federal reform? Like how do, if that's actually the case, like, what are we all, what do we all do? Like, we can't just keep on going on the pace that we're going on right now for indefinitely. I mean, everyone's going to be out of business or out of money. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough period. I mean, I just, I don't, trying to get DC to, to act any, anything other than on their own timeline. I, I just don't know how, other than trying to explore other ways of attacking change. But just my point is that the status quo of, of, 
funding lobbying groups is not working for us. We're just not enough uh, compared to pharma, compared to other industries that just are, are crowding us out. So we got to look at other ways of, of combating that. When we look at cannabis, we look at, we think there's two big pieces. Obviously, there's this regulatory capture that we just don't know when that's going to change. And then there's the fundamentals. And and it does make for a very challenging startup environment if there's no capital. And certainly, we've been in a very capital-constrained period, very long time. But now with the, a macro picture getting darker, that's not going to help risk capital come to this space. So it's, it's going to be really based on companies that can survive this. That's where the mantra that we really embraced early on, survive in advance. And, and I think that's it just became even even more important in, in this now new situation we're dealing with. You really got to have a business that can survive. And I think there's a lot of companies, unfortunately, that are just not going to make it through. They couldn't get to a point of, of generating cash or getting to a position where they can still attract because the latest du jour is the amount of debt defaults we're starting to see in cannabis. There was a lot of money that went into debt. That money went out very fast. It was talking about covenant lights from Silicon Valley Bank. There's definitely been plenty of lenders in our industry that um, didn't do didn't do the process or, or were just feeling too rushed or whatever it was, but they put a lot of money out very quickly and mm-hmm. it's not coming back. And so, you know, that, and that was kind of like the last wave of of where capital thought it was okay to invest in this industry. And Emily and I always kind of scratch our heads of it's perceived as safer, but it's not <laughs> when, when you really look under the hood of these things. I mean, it's your point. It's, it's almost, well, in a lot of instances, it was just like venture debt with the way our tax code is cash flow is very hard for a lot of companies. And so putting debt on, on businesses that are not making cash flow is just like venture debt. And we don't have the covenants or the protections or the assets. There's really very little recovery. So well, and and then there were yeah. I mean, not to get too far down this rabbit hole, but then there was the underwriting on the on the real estate, <laughs> which was inflated for sure, and inflated in areas that it will be hard to recover from because cannabis kind of gets sequestered into the undesirable locations in our in our states and cities. And so, I mean, some retail is different, but I'm I'm talking more about the cultivation assets and things like that but uh, yeah i think i think there's been not great risk assessed underwriting on these risk mitigating focus on these underwriting jobs that people have done on the debt but 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 to be fair to the industry of course the industry was going to lever up because the equity markets have been closed for us for so long so that's expensive too wherever you look it's expensive so so, so, so we're winding down here. Just only have five minutes left. Of course, you know, Morgan, your, your point around a lot of companies are defaulting on their debt in mm-hmm. the cannabis space, and we're going to see that more and more. What advice do you actually have, not for operators, but for ancillary businesses? I mean, I'm, I'm actually asking for advice for myself. So I run a business that works with a lot of these companies that are likely going to be defaulting on their debt. And I want to make sure that Vangst and our team gets paid. And I think about all of our friends and in companies that are the picks and shovels businesses in the space, many of whom you've invested in. What is the advice to founders like me and others that are servicing extremely high risk and volatile customers right now? We, it's a pretty general process. Emily and I both do and Patrick does so any of the boards that we sit on because we are, we're on a lot of boards with portfolio companies. We do a grading system where you take the whole customer list and you try to break it out into health. Like you're looking for various 
metrics, like what markets are they in? Just trying to get a sense of the quality of the business or the probability scoring is, is a, a way to say it. And so if they're in, in a good situation or if they're in maybe a, a marginal situation or if they're at high risk and you try to tear out your book and, and score it like that so you can have some sense around what that looks like. Carson, you've been in this business a long time, so I, I'm sure you have a, a pretty good barometer when you're looking at your customer list, how that would score out. And then you just watch your AR like a hawk. You know, that's just something relentless about is what's your AR aging and making sure that you are staying super tight, especially those that fall into the high risk bucket, that you're you're getting collections or you're getting a process in place or, or what's your preparation around churn for that higher risk buckets and, and your plan to work more with those that have the the higher score of probability of success. Absolutely. And and that yeah, that's a great tip. And I, I feel like our AR aging report, if you looked at my home screen on my computer, is probably like the most refreshed uh, page that I look at. But you know, it is a little bit crazy because you, you take a customer like a one of the one of the big MSOs that recently just pulled out of Colorado, right? And it's like, you know, I had that marked as a, a pretty secure customer, pretty secure. There was going to be a lot of revenue generated in a few of these states and then woke up to the news that no more. So it is a little, I, I agree and we do that, but I do think that there's some of the, some of the largest players are making moves that are, are pretty hard to anticipate. So yeah. that's a good mm-hmm. point. What I would take from that is I would expect more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, from the largest operators, they are going to reallocate resources to what's working and pull resources away from the that is not because they're on this on the same mentality of we'll never raise another dollar again. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to survive? And if we have to make hard decisions of cutting staff and cutting resources in California, in Colorado and doubling down on New Jersey or Maryland or whatever, we're going to see more of that. And and you can see that in a lot of our ancillary technology companies where they see higher levels of churn versus where they're seeing higher levels of, of growth and, and expansion. Um, and so just kind of following those, those trends, I just, yeah, it's, Again, it's a it's a tough period. Everybody is making hard moves, and the big companies are they've been dealing with inflationary cost, inflationary pressures too, and they're dealing with price compression. So they're they're looking at every bit that they can save money and push down costs downstream, which is really hard for all the ancillary companies because it's putting more pressure on them. You know what I mean? There's just a lot of pressure. So it's yeah, just it's it's. But you're right; it's not easy. These decisions can be can be whipsawing for sure. Well, look, guys, we're, we're out of time, but this was a super helpful overview. Morgan, especially just the way that you explained SVB in, in plain English. Our team's actually been asking me for podcasts and resources, so I'm going to send them this one and Emily. Emily and I text all day, every day, so I'm sure I'll talk to you in about 18 seconds about what outfit we're wearing tomorrow to whatever thing we have on that day. But, guys, it was so nice to have you on. I learned a lot, and... I, let's do a follow-up in a couple months to see how everything shakes out. So thank you for your time, and it was great to see you both. Go Bills! Go Bills! Go Bills!